Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. I'm also the author of a series of books published by HarperCollins based on this podcast, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. The books are called Master Mentors. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are now out in print, in audio, in digital and in video books from Lit Video, where each year I am privileged to write a book about the podcast, where I curate uh, 30 of what I think are the most interesting and transformational interviews. And with the benefit and permission of those attendees on the podcast, those guests, I write a short story about something they said, sometimes on air, sometimes off air, that I think is a great compendium of what has now become the second volume in a 10-volume series. Look for volume three of Master Mentors releasing in the fall of 2023 on our way to 10 volumes in the series. Our guest today is the prolific author. He is the social psychologist out of Hope College in Michigan. His name is Dr. David Myers. He's written somewhere close to 20 books. He's not sure if it's 17, 18. You know, you kind of stop counting after your fifth or sixth, but... He is a social psychologist and has written what is often known as the best-selling book on psychology textbook that has sold, I think, close to 9 million copies. His most recent work, which I find to be a bit of a curated compendium on interesting things about why we think and why we do the way we do things in life, is called How We Know Ourselves, Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind. Dr. Myers, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. I appreciate your having me. So, Dr. Myers, I've mentioned, for those who've been following us for nearly 250 episodes over the last five years, that we tend to curate our guests very differently, but with one idea in mind. You know, how does what they've experienced, researched, taught, lived, failed, uh, instruct all of our leadership journeys? Leaders as parents, leaders in the classroom, leaders in organizations, leaders in our social networks. And so, we very much like to have people like yourself that are both practitioners and our researchers and our educators. You are an extraordinarily widely published and read author. You are one of the nation's renowned social psychologists. And this particular book that I actually found at Barnes & Noble a few months ago really piqued my interest. Just the title, How Do We Know Ourselves? Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind. What I'd like to do is ask, of all the books you've written, including the number one, I think, best-selling psychology textbook, why did you choose to write this book, which really is a collection of related but dissimilar things on sort of why we think and why we do what we do in life? So, Scott, my calling is to uh, read psychological science and to discern its first fruits and give them away to college and university students. And from time to time, I come across information that is so interesting or ideas that are so powerful that I want to give them away to the wider public. And that's what I've done with this book which is a collection of uh, bite-sized nuggets of great insights from psychological science on how we think, feel, and act. It's a kind of uh, buffet of hors d'oeuvres of psychological science, if you will, short essays that can be read in five or 10 minutes, 40 of them. And so I just love this stuff. I love writing. I love making words march up a screen. I love sharing ideas as we are right now. A buffet of psychological hors d'oeuvres. I love that because that's exactly what it is. It's a great definition. In fact, when I read a book and I interview the author, I typically will go deep into the stories. In this case, the stories are, I think, um, 
so similar to the chapter title. So I'm going to pitch you a couple of chapter titles and have you teach what's the lesson and what can people learn from it. In fact, you write in the book a lot about humility and the difficulty and ease that humility comes when the science of humility. Remind us, Professor, what it is you want each of us to know about the role humility plays in our lives? Well, first of all, I think we need to understand uh, that the classic sin of pride is deep in us all. Social psychologists find that we live with a self-serving bias. We tend to perceive and present ourselves favorably. And so uh, more than 90% of drivers think they're better than the average driver. More than 90% of uh, students think that they have a superior ability to get along with others. And sometimes that pride serves us well. It gives us self-confidence in our ventures, but it can also go before a fall. And in our day and age, when there's so much polarization, uh, a spirit of what we call intellectual humility is also important for human flourishing. It enables us to learn. And there's uh, wonderful research studies that uh, show how it benefits our relationships and it benefits us as work as well. Uh, and so in my work, I've just written something today and I have to put it out to several other people to get their critiques. And at the end of the day, all of us together in a spirit of humility can produce something that's better than any one of us. The pack is greater than the wolf. And so intellectual humility serves us in uh, our creative work as well as in our personal relationships. David, let me challenge you, not, not from an academic point of view, but just from a human understanding point of view. I don't know that I fully understand what humility means, because is there not a fine line between narcissism and megalomania and self-promotion and marketing and a highly competitive world? Because I see a lot of people that are, that are you know, kind of a humble brag or falsely humble, and I see others that are so deferential to others, they won't take credit for anything that they've done. And so I'm interested to know, what is your opinion on when you are in a, in a free market economy and you're in a hyper-competitive world where attention, deficit, attention spans are low, deficits are big, and people are trying to build followers and influence and credibility without looking like a megalomania, what do you think is that sort of red thread that teases through a good sense of humility with a smart sense of promotion to make sure that your books sell, that your courses sell, that your products sell. Tell us what you think from an academic and an author and as a parent and as a friend, what's the right balance of humility in life? That's a great question, Scott. First of all, I'd say humility is not uh, thinking uh, less of oneself. It's not self-deprecation. It's thinking of oneself less. It's focusing beyond oneself, on others, on one's calling, on one's work. Uh, secondly, uh, humility can include a realistic appraisal of one's own gifts and strengths, which we need to assess and harness uh, with strengths-based uh, uh, management, for example, in leadership as we encourage others to know their strengths and to build on those strengths. But we want to also be aware of the corrupting power of self-serving bias that leads us to think too highly of our own uh, efforts or of our own skill at investing in the stock market or whatever it is. And so a realistic self-appraisal that involves focus not on self, but beyond self is kind of the ideal of humility. 
Nicely said. We're going to spend our time today for our listeners and viewers uh, bouncing on a lot of different topics that I think everybody can do a little bit of self-reflection on. So, you know, humility isn't about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking less about yourself, right? Or less, you know, frequently about yourself. Uh, you've got some great tidbits in the book. Will you talk about the research around surname occupation matching? And why is that more than just a fun thing to know about? Well, that is kind of a fun thing to know about. It's a phenomenon. It's in the first essay that we call implicit egotism, uh, which is the tendency to like things we associate with ourselves. And uh, this comes through in a lot of different research. Whatever whatever you associate with yourself, even somebody else's face, if your own face is morphed into it, you like that other face better. But that also tends to occur that uh, people tend to gravitate towards uh, professions that carry their own name even. So dentists are more often named Dennis or Denise. Uh, 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 and we call this the name occupation uh, relationship that exists in some research. Uh, likewise, people who bear the name Georgia are more likely to live in Georgia or who name Phil are more likely to live in Philadelphia and root for the Philadelphia Eagles. It's just kind of a curious uh, phenomenon that people gravitate towards places and careers that they share a name with. Uh, it's a small phenomenon, but it's one of the curiosities and marvels of the human mind. Well, the reason I ask you is because, as you mentioned, you often hear this adage, people like people like themselves, right? I like people that like champagne. I like tennis players. I like, you know, certain political affiliations. And I like certain countries I like to travel to and their nationality. And I've always wondered, David, uh, if there's truth in this idea that people tend to like people like themselves or things that they have in common with, it's also a challenge that presents itself as leaders. We want to not have that unconscious bias, always be... Uh, fighting against us and making sure that we open up our field of uh, our, our references to people that aren't like ourselves. How do we grow and challenge ourselves if we're just surrounding ourselves with people that are like ourselves? I'm not saying it very well, but my question to you is, if there is truth in the idea that we tend to be more comfortable with things we understand and like and people like us, how do we make sure that that doesn't become a resting place for prejudice or bias and we also open up our fields of experience and reference to people who aren't like us and who don't look like us and who don't like or vote or think the way we do. Absolutely. So uh, there are two contested in the Proverbs. One is that opposites attract. We tend to like people who are different from us. And the other is birds of a feather flock together. And it turns out that the latter is really true. Similarity is in study after study, a very powerful determinant of attraction. And so People tend to like others who share their attitudes, who look like they do, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, but that is a problem if we then limit ourselves to those who are like ourselves, because diversity of ideas promotes creativity within a work group. Uh, and so one of our challenges is uh, given our natural implicit bias Towards others, towards others who are in our group, whatever our group is, it could be our university group, it could be our work group, it could be our ethnic group, our gender, whatever, uh, is to counter that bias in two ways. One is by intentionally uh, being open to and seeking out people who are different from us, and second, by creating environments that welcome a diversity of people and of ideas and of thoughts. 
David, let's talk about a current issue that everyone is facing. You write it in, I think, chapter 20, the psychology of division. I mean, since I've been a voting age, there has been massive division in the country, right? Whether it was Carter or Reagan or uh, Bush or Clinton or Obama and Romney, but it's nothing like it is now. I mean, it's not even, not even relatable, not even, you know, there's no correlation to what it was like in the 80s or 90s or even 2000s to how divided our country is. I mean, look what's happening in Georgia, right, with the election there. Um, in this book, you write that no matter our similarities with others, we tend to focus on differences, and then we kind of all start with the us versus them mentality in group and out of group. Will you just take that wherever you'd like to go in terms of how we tend to focus on our differences versus our similarities, and how do we deal with that when we all complain about how divided the U.S. country is? How do we heal that? Sure. So first of all, there's some wonderful research done some years ago by a Yale psychologist, William McGuire, that found this tendency in any situation, we focus on how we differ from others around us. So we may be in a group in which we're alike in so many ways, but whatever way in which we differ, that's what grabs our attention. If we are redheads, we're more conscious of our hair color. If we're very short or very tall, we're more conscious again of how we differ from others. If we're a minority race, as I am when visiting my daughter in South Africa, or some of my colleagues are here on my campus, we're more race conscious. And so uh, that's, that is, this is a, a really, really powerful phenomenon, our tendency always to kind of gloss over and ignore and forget all our deep similarities and to focus on our differences. And that can lead to tension and dissension and polarization, especially, Scott, when combined with the natural tendency to divide the world into us and them. And in experiments, if you even do it with a coin toss and you have the heads people over here and the tails people over here, they will tend to develop a social identity or a group identity around this arbitrary uh, cluster that defines them as a group of heads or of tails, if you will. And so when it comes to uh, sports rivalries, for my school is Hope versus Calvin. I mean, they're so much like us in denominational heritage and everything, but we're hyper-conscious of how we differ from them. And that makes great rivalry, animosity, usually just good-spirited sports rivalry. But David, it's easier for you to say this on a podcast than it is in real life. I mean, this is a global podcast. Most of our listeners are here in the Western Hemisphere, North America, although probably half and half, quite frankly. It's difficult to put that social psychologist ideology into practice when you're either a CNNer or you're a Foxer, or you're a Democrat, right. or you're a Republican, and no politician right. is successfully winning office by talking about our similarities. They say that in their inaugural speech, but that's never in their political ads and campaigns. What would you do to remind each of us on how to not be part of the problem of division and be more a part of the solution on you know, you, you, um, unity when we have difference of opinions on vaccinations and on masks and on social policy and on tax rates and on social programs and on how do we balance the fact that we do have different opinions, opinions, but not making them divisions around what we have in common. It's easier said than done. Right. So in, in any religious group where there's religious diversity, people tend to focus on how they differ and then they magnify and they blow that up out of proportion. 
Another thing that happens, Scott, is a phenomenon that I cut my eye teeth on in social psychology to be called group polarization. And that is if people, if we, by the way, in experiments, we would tend to group people on the basis of their attitudes. Like in one experiment, we put low prejudiced people together with others who thought like they did, high prejudiced people with other more prejudiced people. And then we had them discuss some issues relevant to their difference. After the discussion with like-minded others within their tribe, so to speak, the groups were even farther apart. And now what's happened in our culture is we've weaponized group polarization with social media that allow us to group together with others that think like we do. And that's what happens on the internet. And thus we reinforce each other within our tribes and our differences are growing greater. And the percentage of Democrats and of Republicans who hate the other party has doubled uh, in the last 20 years as a result of this separation compounded by group polarization. And so to answer your question, we need to intentionally ask ourselves, are we just exposing ourselves to people that think like we do, not challenging our thinking? Confirmation bias is a natural human tendency. We tend to seek out views that support our own views rather than help us grow by challenging our views. I think this is such an important topic because so much of what we tend to say, myself included, and what I hear are often delivered very dogmatically, like this is fact, this is declarative. I was with a dear friend of mine, a highly educated physician recently, and this person, uh, physician, chose to be vaccinated but was kind of suspicious of the COVID um, you know, phenomenon, as they might call it. And then recently, they are, they are even more sort of anti-vax than they even were. And at a recent um, event with this person, I, I, I challenged them. This, this person is a physician. I am not. And this per person equated it to it's just the common flu. And I said to this physician, I said, yes, but a million people a year don't die from the flu. He said, yes, they do. About a million people in the U.S. died from COVID. But I researched the next day, and about 25,000 people a year die from the flu. From the flu. 25,000 is not a million. But because this person is a physician, it was kind of delivered as fact. You write a chapter about the overconfidence phenomenon. Will you riff on that? And what do we all have to learn introspectively around how our confidence or overconfidence creates misinformation and division and animosity towards each other? So absolutely, there is a powerful overconfidence phenomenon. If you ask people, uh, which is, uh, uh, I mean, various factual questions, which is longer, uh, the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal, and how confident are you in your answer? People will routinely be more confident than correct. And we call this the overconfidence phenomenon. And so we underestimate our vulnerability to error. By the way, if we're people of faith, we shouldn't be doing that because we recognize there is a God, it's not us, we're fallible, finite creatures, we're vulnerable to error, but yet we're prone to pride and to overconfidence. And moreover, because of the confirmation bias that we mentioned earlier, seek and ye shall find, we tend to seek out information that confirms what we believe rather than challenges what we believe. And as a result, 
we may become very resist, very resilient in our beliefs. Yeah. Uh, and once we form an explanation for why they might be true, we tend to cling to that explanation, even if the basis for the phenomenon was uh, was has been disputed. This was, by the way, if I could just go on, this was demonstrated in one wonderfully classic experiment in which people were shown, half the people were shown evidence that suggested that cautious people make better firefighters. Half were shown evidence indicating that risk takers make better firefighters. And they were asked to explain the result. Uh, in the first case, well, I mean, uh, cautious people are more likely to do stupid things. Or in the second case, uh, risk takers are braver and so they save more people and then the researchers totally discounted the information we actually don't have a clue but what do you think having formed a reason why a belief might be true people held on to that belief and persisted in it even though the very foundation for it was decimated so we tend to cling to ideas once formed once we form beliefs it's hard to unbelieve them and, and david i think when we talk about that, I don't know about you, but in my social circle, which is fairly large, we think it's the other person that should be more informed. We think it's the other person who's clinging to their biases or whatever it is. And I think all of us need to be more insightful around, and so are we. So how am I going to be more open to someone else's point of view to, to sophisticate my hopefully informed opinion based on experience? And also, I think I'm right. <laughs> What's the psychology right. behind being yeah. confirmed in your conviction, but also being open to others' opinions? There's a, there's a, it's a fine right. line there. Yeah, and you're quite right, Scott. Uh, indeed, one example of self-serving bias is people think they're less vulnerable to self-serving bias than other people are. Uh, and, and of course, there's the associated famed Dunning-Kruger effect that uh, people who are least competent in their answers to uh, uh, various kinds of problems, uh, most uh, overestimate their competence. And so uh, we all need to remember the Dunning-Kruger effect that uh, particularly in areas that we aren't expert, we may overestimate our expertise. And getting back to what we talked about earlier, we need to remember the benefits of humility, of exposing our work to others, welcoming criticism, not feeling threatened by it. It's not about me when I get the feedback today on this draft essay. It's about my essay and it's making a better product as a result. David, as a social psychologist, you are the author of the most wildly read textbook on psychology. I'm gonna deviate from your current book for a moment and kind of ask you a broad question. Speak to the millions of people that are watching and listening right now that are working with someone, for someone, leading someone, sitting beside someone in their office that they would deem is difficult. You see all these books, how to deal with difficult people, how to talk to difficult people. Of course, no one themselves is difficult, it's always the other person, right? As a social psychologist, what would you say are some tips, some techniques, some insights where we have someone in our lives that we've deemed difficult? Could be a spouse, a mother-in-law, a neighbor, a colleague, a coworker, a leader, someone who works for us. What should we keep in mind about how to treat them, how to communicate with them. I know I'm kind of lumping you know, a large population, basically the entire population. Remind us of some things that might help us to be a little more patient, a little more tolerant, a little more forgiving, a little more humble, a little kinder. What should we know? Well, first of all, I want to say, Scott, you've just named a number of wonderful virtues that we could try to put in practice. So I would just take your own words and feed them back to you. Secondly, I'd say, 
that one thing to do in our relationships with others and in our leadership or management of people is to notice when people are doing something well and appreciate them, affirm them, reward them for that. That's, of course, the powerful principle of positive reinforcement, which is a more powerful way of shaping behavior than punishment or criticism. So catch people, watch for times when people are doing something well or something you appreciate and affirm that and you will strengthen that behavior. David, if you were to write a column titled, What Most People Get Wrong About Others, what would you write in it? Oh dear, what most people get wrong about others uh, is uh, maybe, <laughs> Take your time. Uh, Take you're your stumping time. me here. What most people get wrong about others is maybe sometimes overestimating the powers of their and our own intuition. Uh, sometimes what we get wrong about others, oh, here's one. We tend to assume that they're having more fun than we are. And especially in this day of social media, when we see their self-presentations, at parties, having fun with family, much joy, and we're watching these social media feeds, sitting home alone by ourselves and thinking our lives are comparatively dull. Uh, but in fact, uh, they, think every, they think everybody else is having more fun than they are. And so we're all wrong uh, because our, all our lives are more mundane than what we're presenting to each other on social media. That's certainly something we get wrong about others. In fact, that's a chapter in your book. Uh so let's talk about friendships. You write a couple chapters around what you call the happy science of micro-friendships. I mean, I don't know anybody that doesn't want better friendships. You may not want more friendships, but I think uh, as we've interviewed many psychiatrists and psychologists on this podcast, we've talked about the pervasiveness of loneliness in the world, especially loneliness as it leads to mental health issues and post, you know, pandemic resiliency. Talk about the happy science of what you call micro-friendships. Sure. So this is uh, the result of some really wonderful uh, experiments in which people are induced to be friendly to, to express gratitude or to do something nice for somebody else. And it unex to an unexpected extent, it boosts their mood and it boosts the other's mood. So, for example, in one experiment, Nicholas Epley, a very creative social psychologist at the University of Chicago, uh, invited commuters uh, who were given a $5 gift card to either do as they usually do on their commute on the train or bus in Chicago or to sit in solitude or to force themselves to strike up a conversation with a stranger which they thought might be a little awkward, but which after doing it at the end of the trip, left them and their seatmate in a much better mood than they were when they began the trip and then the people in the other conditions were. And likewise, other experiments have found that uh, people who are induced to banter with the barista or give a warm greeting to uh, uh, a bus driver or to compliment a stranger passing by on something that you appreciate, about them uh, or uh, to pass on a gratitude to a friend. All these things have unexpected positive effects if we'll force ourselves to do them. I call them micro friendships because they're just fleeting relationships. But they suggest to us that if we can push ourselves out of our comfort zone to talk up the rideshare driver, to ask the checkout clerk how their day is going or 
to uh, check in with an old friend or write a note of gratitude to somebody that you appreciate, you'll be surprised at how good you feel and how good they feel. David, I want to end on death, which sounds morose, but it's actually, you know, uh, a, a topic that's in all of our lives. I once interviewed, I've many times have interviewed the, the, the famous psychiatrist, Dr. Daniel Amen, based in California. He's a neuroscientist, brain imaging expert, and child psychiatrist. And during the pandemic, it had just launched, and I'd heard the suicide rate was um, exponentiating, so I asked Daniel, will you come on the podcast? And my first question was, Daniel, are we all going to die? And his answer was, yes. Maybe not from COVID, but yes, we are all going to die. And my father passed about six months ago. We weren't especially close. We weren't estranged, but I wasn't especially close to my dad, both geographically or even personally. And I've been thinking a lot about my dad's passing. I'm the father to three young sons, and I'm in 54 years old. I've lived about 72% of my life statistically as a white male in America. And that's kind of weighing on me that 72% of my life is over. Let's spend the rest of our time talking about dying and how people who are near death might view dying differently than those perhaps are further from it. Spend a few minutes and talk about what you'd like for us all to know about the role death may play in our lives. Well, Scott, uh, when people are asked to imagine the emotions that others experience as in later life they approach death, the grim reaper looming close, they imagine a grim, depressing scenario. And research has actually found that uh, people approaching death do not actually express such terribly negative emotions. These are studies done with people on death row, on uh, terminally ill cancer patients, for example. Uh, When people are asked to construct uh, narratives of what they think these people would write to describe themselves and their lives, they're much more negative than those actually given us by people who are approaching death, who frequently express great gratitude for their lives, love for others around them. So uh, the researcher who did this research uh, summarized by saying, death is more positive than people expect. Meeting the grim reaper may not be as grim as it seems. I talked to you at at age 80. Uh, So I've got, what, another 10 years or so left? I'm mindful. I don't have that many Christmases and summer holidays left. And so I can take some encouragement in this. And of course, many of us have are grounded in hope of something that is beyond death as well. Well, you are very sharp, spry 80. I, I have never guessed even close to that. Thank you. Although 17 books kind. did take a few decades, right? So maybe the math Thank adds you. up there. David, uh, send us off with some positive thoughts As a social psychologist, the happiest, most fulfilled, successful people, at the end of their lives, what do they have in common? Sure. What they have in common are, first of all, uh, close relationships. We are social animals. We are made to belong. And so people at the end of their lives who are uh, embedded in close relationships with others who care deeply about them and who they care deeply about are happier. We know that. Uh, Secondly, we know that people that live with a sense of meaning and purpose to their life, uh, often informed by a religious faith, uh, tend to be happier and to live with greater life satisfaction at the end of of, uh, of their lives. They may or may not be people of great wealth. 
we do know that poverty is not a happy condition, but once you get beyond a certain level of, of wealth that allows you to afford all of life's necessities with comfortable security, more and more wealth does not breed more and more happiness. And finally, uh, people who live with an, uh, an, uh, an active faith that gives them hope for the long-term future, as well as a sense of purpose and calling in the here and now, they tend to live happy lives. And many people do, and that's why older adults tend to be resilient. They tend to have as high a level of well-being as middle-aged and younger adults. So uh, live well and uh, live purposefully, uh, nurture your social connections, uh, and have a deepened sense of hope, and you too will enjoy a long and good life. David, I think I read once a Harvard longitudinal study that talked about the correlation between um, happiness and legacy and fulfilled life and relationships. Again, you know, says easy, um, does hard. For exactly. Some That's one of the studies I had in mind, Scott. Yeah. And, and it's easier for, you know, us to discuss it here, but there's a large part of the population that suffer from anxiety or social anxiety, or perhaps they had a violation or a trauma that has pushed their ability to make friendships and build trusting relationships further from them. Any advice you would give to a large segment of the population watching and listening to that yearns for deeper relationships, but it's difficult for them. Perhaps they don't know how to build friendships or they're socially awkward or they have been home for two years and they're not quite sure how to build or rebuild. Are there, I don't know any quick fixes, but is there anything you would say to, for those perhaps introverts also that are finding it difficult to make and build and keep friendships? Is there, are, are there some tips or habits or advice you might give us on, okay, I know, I need friendships. I need meaning in my life. Now, how do I do that? How do I meet people and maybe move outside my comfort zone? First, Scott, uh, you're absolutely right that COVID, which deprived us of relationships, was a time of heightened depression uh, in the United States and worldwide. And so that was just a wonderful example, if you will, a, a large-scale experiment on how uh, deprived of relationships were less happy. So relationships, social connections are important. They're important for introverts as well as for extroverts. And one of the curious findings of this research on micro friendships, on people's forcing themselves to reach out to and initiate interactions with others, seatmates on a commute, baristas, uh, bus drivers, or people on the street, is that introverts are happier after doing so as well as extroverts. So one thing we can do is just push ourselves to write that gratitude letter, to pick up the call, to initiate a, a coffee date. Uh, uh, and if we will act as if these relationships are important and that we are capable of having close relationships, fake it if you will, it will happen naturally and we will enjoy that experience and our relationships will develop and grow. So I don't mean to mean to, to, to diminish real depression and anxiety of a right. clinical sort, but there are things we can do to, uh, to connect. Dr. Myers, statistically, you're two years over the limit because the average age <laughs> for you and I right. is 78. But according to you, you've got 10 more years left, and I hope that's an understatement. You've written somewhere close to 20 books. You've lost count, uh, as I've mentioned several occasions, because I think it's worthy of recognition. You've written what is the most wildly read psychology textbook, textbook. Um, what's next for you in your next decade plus? Well, one thing that's due for me, and it's 
ties right into our keeping social connections. Scott, I live with very severe hearing loss. And uh, two week, three weeks ago, I had a cochlear implant, uh, which will be activated this coming Thursday as I talk to you. And I'm doing that partly because I am the child of a deaf mother who was completely deaf at my age and lost social relationships. We had to write notes to her. She didn't have the technology available that I do. And her life became frankly quite sad and depressing because of the loss of social connections. So what's up for me? One thing that's up for me, Scott, is a new cochlear implant, which I'm hoping will sustain my human connections in the years to come. I'm delighted for you. Dr. David Myers, author of a prolific number of books, including the new release, How Do We Know Ourselves? Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind. Great food for thought today. Thank you for joining us, sir. You're a class. Scott, I love being with you. Thank you so much for welcoming me. Best of success to you. And we'll see you, you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.